0: Hello, and welcome back to Fade In, a podcast from the club's screenwriting at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where we take a critical look at film storytelling. Today, we'll continue our exploration of the true story film genre by taking a look at the 2015 film Spotlight, directed by Tom McCarthy, who also co-wrote the film alongside Josh Singer. Spotlight recounts the true story of reporters at the Boston Globe newspaper, and their investigation into several unknown sexual assault cases involving children in the Catholic Church, which occurred in the city over many years. Spotlight follows in the stead of procedural journalism films based on real-life events, such as All the President's Men, a genre which has since become a familiar media mold with works like Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom and Steven Spielberg's 2017 film The Post. The titular investigative team which uncovered the story between 2001 and 2002 received Pulitzer prizes for their important journalistic work. This fictional adaptation was similarly acclaimed, winning Academy Awards for Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture in 2016. Prior to writing Spotlight, Tom McCarthy co-wrote the Pixar film Up! in 2009, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award alongside Bob Peterson and Pete Docter. Meanwhile, Josh Singer began his writing career on the popular political drama series The West Wing before going on to co-write Spotlight and eventually write the screenplay for The Post. I'll be joined by our club's VP of Finance, Marta Nielska, along with our VP External, Colin Morley, to discuss some important questions related to Spotlight. We'll discuss how the film uses dramatic and storytelling conventions to depict the real-life investigation at the heart of this story. How the characterization of the Globe journalists establishes the story's stakes and advances greater themes. And finally, the crucial differences between real-world journalism and these fictional portrayals, and the implications of this. A quick content warning before we start, in this episode we'll be discussing topics which some viewers may find uncomfortable or unsettling, namely sexual assault. Please keep this in mind as you listen. But otherwise, we hope our conversation sheds light on some important aspects of this film. I'm joined now by our VP External, Colin Morley, and once again, our VP Finance, Marta Agnieszka. Uh, I'm looking forward to discussing Spotlight with you both. I don't know, I think it's the budding journalist in me that was quite inspired by this film in a way. And Marta, I know you expressed similar thoughts during our meeting discussion. Uh, But, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. And perhaps we can sort of delve into that, you know, ambiguity when it comes to relating this to our actual journalism experiences.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's definitely some things to talk about in terms of how the film represents um, such a kind of like complicated and difficult job.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think just going off the bat in terms of the perspective that this film tries to portray, of course, it's an external perspective. Uh, We're looking at this very intricate societal problem, uh, and the writing sort of gears us in that direction, uh, not least of which in the character of Marty Baron, played by Liev Schreiber. So I'm just curious to hear both of your thoughts, maybe starting with Colin, on the particular purpose that his character plays.
2: Yeah, to me, I, I think he, he represents the viewer. That That's what I got when I watched the film. I think he's sort of our eyes and ears in the movie, uh, you know, because he's he's an outsider. I mean, they, they make it quite known that he's, he's not Catholic, he's Jewish, and he's not from Boston. So I think throughout the film, we see him try to go up against the Catholic Church, and he realizes, you know, the power of the church and really how it's synonymous with with Boston and that you can't separate the church from Boston, the power structures are are intertwined in that way
1: I noticed kind of a foil dynamic in terms of um, the character of um, Marty and uh, michael keaton's character, uh, Robbie, I think it was um, because it, it's showing you two different necessary individuals in journalism i think one of my favorite um favorite parts of this movie was how uh, collaborative journalism has to be like how everyone kind of has a skill that is necessary to the team and if they don't portray that skill then or like they don't use that skill then the story doesn't really work and so you get this sense that like Robbie has all these connections right he knows how to speak the language he plays like um he plays golf he used to go to the schools he um can like get insider knowledge um and the subtext in that was really fantastic just like thinking about the dialogue in terms of like how he's able to connect with them and kind of like um almost indicate to them that they have to Um, They have to do this. They have to get the story out there is really fascinating. But then you put that up against um, Marty. And I think like most specifically that part where um, we find out that Robbie actually kind of covered this story up, like didn't really cover it up, but almost like didn't notice it. And you realize how instrumental Marty is just because of the fact that he is an outsider and he is looking at this from a perspective that isn't internal. Like he's not part of the machine. He is looking inside at the machine, while Robbie is part of the machine. And both of those pieces are necessary. You know, you need people in the machine to figure out what's wrong with it, or to kind of like figure things out. Um, this is an awful metaphor, but you also need people outside of the machine to be able to tell there's a problem in the first place. Um, and I think that kind of like foil structure that they developed throughout the film was really interesting in terms of um, teasing out the various roles you need in a uh, newspaper to um, pursue these kinds kinds of stories.
0: Mhm for sure. And I also noticed the sort of big leagues like small leagues dichotomy cuz one of the details about Marty was that you know he came from the west coast he was with the Miami Herald and all these other more prestigious well-known newspapers so coming to Boston Globe it was not quite a downscale for him but it was you know definitely uh, not something that compared to the grandeur of his previous postings. So perhaps there's also that dynamic of those, uh, you know, two clashing sets of experience when it comes to the actual field of journalism. I don't know, what do you guys make of that?
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. I think like just even like the the cultural differences between like cities like Miami and Boston, I don't know, like I, I assume that was what his actual profession was before I mean, where he actually worked before but even if you think about it I always just like Miami I think you it, it, it has a certain like brevity to it because you associate it with like the sun and all this stuff like that and I think Boston is a more somber place it's probably more like uh, the weather is more like Toronto that type of thing but yeah I think I, I that's what I was thinking when you're talking about that it it also I think it also just it highlights the difference in mindset because I think you know they're just two very different two different very different places
1: It also probably just like brings up the stakes of the story more. I think that's kind of what Marty is getting at during the entire film is like the necessity of stakes. Um, And that's also where the ethical journalism and the kind of conversations they have come out from is this idea that like um, what's I think potentially the large newspaper idea like... um, It's possible that when you work for a bit of a smaller newspaper that's more local and almost like more collaborative, you, again, you're part of the system. So you kind of get like not bogged down but you kind of just start working with these um ideas in the story and you know this is what makes you release like one-off stories um like ones that don't really do anything um I think I think that can be common in small newspapers but Marty comes in and he's got a real sense of stakes because that's what big newspapers are supposed to do like you have to constantly be thinking about like what happens when I release this story why does it matter and I think that's a lot of the where a lot of the conversations come out of it's like what happens when we release this story? Do we sit on it? For how long? Like, who are we hurting if we wait on this story? Um, What's going to happen? And um, Marty has a really good way of looking at that because when you come from newspapers that are bigger, you have to think about that stuff because what you write is going to have a really big impact, not just on your readership, but probably even outside of it. Like when the New York Times um, publishes a giant story, for example, I believe um, I believe it was the New Yorker and the New York Times that originally um, got out the Me Too story. I believe it was those two publications and like everyone heard about that. That's not just your readership. That's not just the people buying the New Yorker. That's everyone. Um, so I feel like he really brought those stakes in and that really clear idea of like it's not just about the readership. And so we shouldn't just be pandering to the readership.
0: You beg an interesting question there, Marta, because slightly tangential, but I made me think of the, you know, ambiguity uh that we sort of face in this current age when, you know, everything is online uh, between, you know, local news and global news and how the former may be seeming to lose value, even if that's not the case. So, I don't know, it just makes me contemplate whether that uh, synergy and cooperation between the local and the global is still important in, in this current media landscape that we find ourselves in.
1: Um, yeah, and I mean, I can comment a bit on this. I feel like people, there's two things that are really interesting in Spotlight to me. Um, one is, it's almost ironic the fact that it was ever even made. Because um, these investigative units are really dying. Like as compared to like regular news sections, um, investigative news is really dying because it's long-term work and it just doesn't fit like modern profit schemes for newspapers. In fact, recently um, the University of Toronto in collaboration with the Toronto Star and several other news organizations um, created the investigative journal IJB, Investigative Journal Bureau, or something a uh, Journalist Bureau, or something along those lines, which is meant to fill in that gap where like investigative segments like Spotlight are being kind of like shut down because they're not considered profitable anymore. So there's an irony for me to the fact that this film was made in like I believe 2015 when this trend would have already been happening. And moreover, people don't actually realize how important local news is to like a lot of larger news stories. A lot of local news. News is instrumental. It's the kind of bedrock that larger news organizations base their stories off of. And so the fact that they're kind of dying or actually even worse, the fact that they're being monopolized by certain companies with like certain agendas in mind is um, has become a real problem um, because I believe like a massive percentage of local news in the States is now owned by one company called the Sinclair Group um, or something along those lines. And it's like caused some problems for them, Sinclair Broadcasting Group. So uh, yeah, it's it's definitely topical um, is what I can say on that.
0: Yeah, media monopolies are, you know, nothing new to us, unfortunately in this age, but you know, back during the events of the film, I believe it was 2001, uh, it's sort of a bit of a novelty to see that early internet age uh, and, you know, sort of the, the the fascination with it. And it was like, oh, wow, it was a supplement to help you spread the story rather than something that would lead to engulfing uh, the entire publication and the integrity. So it's definitely interesting in retrospect.
2: Yeah, I think in sort of a reverse way, it, like what Marta was saying speaks to the idea of like sort of turning a blind eye in the film, because if you didn't have, you know, groups like spotlight you know looking at local problems i think and you just were sort of parroting what large news corporations were saying i don't think you'd you'd notice like what things are going on in your own community i think you know even like as you know in canada we can notice that and the fact that like i feel like a lot of our news is sort of monopolized by american news right i think even if you go and read like a uh like a newspaper article online, a lot of them are just imported from American newspapers. So, and then I think we get so focused on, you know, other people's issues, not necessarily that they, I mean, they impact us, but we start to, you know, I think uh, lose track of what's going on in our own communities, which I think speaks to the film in a lot of ways, because the team like Spotlight, if you didn't have a local team that was invested in their community, no one would really notice.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that also speaks to the central preoccupation of the film that being, you know, conveying uh, this journalistic pursuit and investigation, but in the film medium with that sort of fictional uh, veil over it, and, you know, how to perhaps pull that off uh, in a way that does justice to the original events while also still remaining true as a film. So I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on that dynamic.
1: I think that one of the things they do really well is that it really shows you how everything starts from like these small little things, like investigating small little parts um, to moving out, like just continuously being like, oh, this is bigger and oh, this is bigger and doing that over and over again until you've got like this massive, massive story. Because really it starts with like a priest and then it moves up to four priests, like literally the numbers, the way they play with the numbers um, is like I think very smart of them because um, it both emphasizes the important uh, the importance of like local news reporting and like looking in at the small details but it also emphasizes the importance of like moving out in scope and figuring out how the story applies um, and I think that's like a really intelligent move of, uh, on their part. To add on really quickly to that, to something that's a little bit, like, more applicable to what we were talking about previously with, like, Marty as the outsider, um, I think that um, that's another interesting, that's, like, another example of the interplay of kind of, like, local news people who are invested in the story and care and that's why they investigate and so that's really interesting because again you see that kind of like that's why the people in the system are necessary to work on the story because even if they don't spot it in the first place because they're not really looking or because they're potentially part of the problem they're the ones who are going to carry it through and who are actually going to follow the threads to the end because they're the ones who actually have a real stake in that story like marty doesn't have as much of a stake in this story and that's what keeps getting reiterated over and over again to robbie um, like it's pretty much the primary form of rhetoric that he hears from i believe it was the representative of the cardinal so um, yeah like that's definitely something they accomplished in the film
0: yeah, and that sort of personal connection and those personal stakes extends to the very method by which the story is uncovered, which is through the one-on-one interviews. I think that was definitely an interesting way for us as the viewers to sort of get to know this underlying conflict on a more intimate and hard-hitting level.
2: I think like the, the interviews in, in the movie, they're sort of they're they're sort of the heart of the story. It's the way that, you know, I think we as an audience Feel sympathy for for the victims. Uh, you know, we get to hear their stories and we get to hear what they went through. And I think without that, I, I think as you know, someone said before, the, the the story would kind of it would just kind of become sort of methodic. You'd be just kind of watching uh, people go through the motions uh, of of the story. It wouldn't really have a lot of heart to it. So I think the 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 interviews with the victims are a really good way of highlighting that the topic of the film, the abuse, actually affects people. Because I think when you're talking about, uh, you know, major topics like that, sometimes they can get lost in sort of the discussion. You, you you kind of forget what the actual impact is on the people that are living it. And I think the interviews show it to, show that to us and make it so that we can't forget it as we watch the movie and we're watching the larger uh, journalistic process play out.
0: And I will just add as a side note, it's sort of so nice and quaint to see that old school journalism at work, you know, meeting someone in person, uh, which is something we can yearn for quite a bit in this current situation. And I also love the the color corded or coordinated pens that they use throughout. If you noticed, I think all the spotlight journalists use blue ones and Marty uses a red one. So I thought that was a nice little detail.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that another thing I really uh, liked about part of the portrayal is how they they do kind of have, like, a lot of nuance in terms of showing how journalism is in some ways part of the problem and i don't mean like the systemic problem i mean like the actual trauma because there's the part where like you know um 9-11 happens and they have to cut off all of those interviews and rachel mcadams character i cannot remember any of these characters (laughs) yeah i yeah sasha you're totally right i just remember the actors i guess that tells you something about their star power um they were all really great in the movie um Uh, But yeah, like, Sasha is, like, talking to, um, I believe it's, like, the head of SNAP. I can only remember the acronym. (laughs) Um, Like, it's it's the head of SNAP, and he's saying, you know, like, you keep doing this, and he's really breaking down about it. And I think, like, Yeah, that's part of it. Like having to go to media, having to like talk to media, having to relive those memories. That is part of the trauma. And it just gives you a sense of how much weight. Like I really think that the interviews, what they do is they show you how much weight journalists deal with and how much like really they need to be very careful in not messing up. Because if they do mess up, it's going to tangibly hurt a lot of people. They need to get these people to trust them. Like, in some ways, that is incredibly emotionally traumatic. It's actually like a microcosm of the same thing. You know, like you, they trust their abusers. They trusted their abusers as children and to trust someone else like the media and say, you are allowed to know my name. You are allowed to know my story. I am telling you because I trust you that's a massive amount of responsibility for them because, um, and that's not glorifying journalism, that's just saying what it is. And that like, you don't want to turn that survivor into a victim again. Like you really don't want to mishandle their story because if you do, it is, another layer of trauma onto the trauma they've already suffered. Um, And I think that like the 9-11 part, the kind of way that they show these victims, like talking to them, it makes that all really clear um, and really like obvious to the audience, which I definitely appreciated.
0: Yeah, Colin, I'm thinking of the other film you nominated a few weeks ago, uh, Room, uh, obviously very different in terms of the presentation or the, the role of journalism. But I I think the depiction was very similar in that we sort of saw that dark underbelly of what it's like, you know, with media trying to portray the uh, experience of of someone who's been through trauma and the potential downsides of that. So I'm I'm curious to hear your take on any potential commonalities between those two films.
2: Yeah, I think it gets to what Marta was saying. I think, you know, I think both movies, I think when you see the victims talking, it's a credit to the actors and to the writers. I think it shows you in like a general way through journalism, you know, how difficult it is for people to come forward. I think that's sort of one of the major, the the, the major messages that get across in in both films, right? I think in a a movie like Room, it's it's a little more directly obvious because obviously uh, the character who's being, who's been abused and is being interviewed has a, a sort of a, a very strong reaction and that they try to end their life. But I just think in, in spotlight, you see it too, because, you know, for instance, when the Rachel McAdams character is talking to the one man who's been abused and they're having a coffee. And then he says, you know, we need to leave because it's going to get, because the details are going to become graphic. Like I think it just shows you the difficulty and, you know, the, I don't know if this is the right word. It's not embarrassment, but just fear, um, you know, Perhaps even you know guilt types of things. Everything that a victim might feel that you know that keeps them from coming forward. And I think the interviews, I think the interviews show that in a way that's really easy for an audience to understand because they're putting it in the frame of uh, journalism. So it's not like they're just talking to their mom, who you might be like, "Well, why wouldn't they tell somebody in their family?" They're talking to a journalist, and that kind of highlights the 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 the, the sort of the feeling of exposure, right? Because they're being pressed to talk about it.
0: The work of the spotlight team in both the film and in real life teaches us the importance of staying informed about current societal issues. With this in mind, for today's newsreel segment, we wanted to spotlight our own national issue related to the events of the film, which has come to the public forefront over the past year. This past September 30th marked Canada's first Truth and Reconciliation Day, dedicated to acknowledge the injustices committed against Indigenous children at residential schools across our country for more than a century. The children who were abducted faced all manner of abuse and mistreatment, resulting in countless deaths and lingering generational trauma. In an eerie parallel to the events of Spotlight, many members of the Catholic Church were responsible for committing such abuses and several perpetrators of these crimes remain unpunished. The horrors of residential schools have been well known amongst Indigenous communities for a long time, and have been taught in Canadian high school classrooms to varying degrees of depth. However, the discovery of 215 unmarked children's graves at a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia earlier this year, sparked a renewed public awareness for this dark chapter of Canadian history, as well as a renewed conversation about our country's colonial legacy, which continues to impact Indigenous populations to this day. The Kamloops story was first broken by the town's local news outlet, CFJC Today, by reporter James Peters on May 27th, 2021. Soon after, it was picked up and covered extensively by larger nationwide outlets like the CBC. Media coverage has been an important platform for activism and social change. And just as with the Boston Globe team in the film, the Kamloops story was first uncovered at the local level. Whether this journalism will inspire new policies or accountability at the federal level is an ongoing question, but it serves to show the important role that accurate and conscientious reporting plays in publicizing the stories of the marginalized, something the film's spotlight exemplifies all too well. Now, back to the show.
1: Myself as someone who works in reporting not seriously um but like uh, definitely a little bit um i think it it can be a little bit difficult to watch these scenes because um it feels almost like bordering on emotional manipulation and they have like true intentions or at least you want to believe they do this is the problem like spotlight paints its characters in a very certain way they are presented as people who have the best intentions at heart. But the problem is that when you're approaching media, you never know what media's intentions are. You never know what a journalist's intentions are. And even if they have good intentions, that doesn't mean they can't really mess up a story. We, we get the sense that the story was covered well, right? Like The end is um, you have all the victims calling in. like That's the very last scene. And the obvious implication is that they did the story well. And that because they did the story well, more people will trust them. But on a level for me, it can sometimes like scare me because it feels like emotional manipulation to go to these people and to be like, oh, I understand. I understand your story. I want to help. I want to get it out there. I want people to know. I want to help. And then what happens when things are out of your control or when you make a mistake? That's like really dropping the ball. I also think it shows you the stakes of being like like the lawyers, right? Like they're in a lot of ways the movie makes it clear that these positions are not just jobs. Like being a journalist can't be just a job. Being a lawyer can't be just a job because there is too much at stake for them to be just jobs. And when you mess up your job or when you make the right wrong choice, like, for example, that one lawyer, I really can't remember any of these names. Um,
2: Garibedian, Stanley Kushian's character, right?
1: No, the other one, the bad one.
2: The McLeish one? Is it the McLeish one?
1: I think so. Yeah. Like McLeish, even him, he says like, I sent you all of this information years ago to the newspaper. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. But you still did it. You still profited off of these people for years on end. Like just because you tried to let newspapers know and they didn't do anything doesn't mean that you didn't mess up in your own job. Even if you say it's just a job. Like, I think it just really points out that you can't just in a lot of ways, you can't just do a job mechanically. You have to really think through your choices in a job because it is, especially these like jobs, like journalist, like lawyer, like judge, it's really affecting people at high levels. And I think at a certain point, like the excuse I was just doing my job is like not enough. It's not enough for me. Like if someone did something like that and told me it was just a job, it would not be enough for me.
0: I mean, I think that has special resonance uh, in our you know, day and age when we're talking about systemic issues of discrimination in, you know, various other societal issues, not the least of which being police brutality, which I, I feel there's an interesting analog here uh, when it comes to juxtaposing the systemic problems that are a lot uh, more difficult to identify compared to these individual actors. Uh, I think they use the word bad apples in this very film, so that just sort of points to that as well. Uh, And, of course, Marty, in their investigation, encourages the team to look at it from a broader, more systemic, top-down manner, rather than just these individual incidents. So I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the the film navigates that whole divide.
2: You know, I I think, uh, for me, the way that it navigates it is the, the juxtaposition between the investigation and the reporter's personal lives. I mean... I think Marta was making that point earlier about how you know you just see the the number of priests growing and growing and growing, and then you have a character like Marty who's going up against the cardinal. And I think that aspect of it, as the story progresses, you see sort of uh, uh, you sort of see the the scandal getting bigger and and the story getting bigger. And then I think the major culmination of that is pretty much the end credits, right? When you have all the phones ringing and then all the names. So I think that's sort of like the the progression of the, of the, of the story that's being written over time, highlights it being bigger. And then I think the personal lives of the journalists, you know, we see, you know, how the character of Sasha played by Rachel McAdams is dealing with this personally because her grandmother is devout and clearly finds a lot of comfort in the church, but at the same time, and, it, and she went with her, and it was a way that they bonded. But as the film progresses, you know, she's trying to reconcile with what she knows as a journalist with, her family's faith and whether she wants to be a part of that or not. So I think it just it show as your as the story goes along, we see the emotional toil, toll toll uh, on the on, on the journalists themselves. Uh, and I'll, there's more examples, but I'll I'll let Marta go.
1: Yeah I mean I think it's honestly just like you you get it through kind of that like overwhelming sense of like oh my god at every kind of turn and like every kind of new information they figure out they're really good at building up the suspense where like they reveal something like the movie is very good at building up the suspense of like when they reveal something and you just like it's almost like you with the journalists need a moment to pause and be like oh my god oh my god that's insane um and I think that like bated breath that moment where you have to process just how big things are getting like I think on a certain level um the human mind can't even process 90 priests let alone like the entire system like the human mind is not even capable of processing that so it just like it's a practice of again and again being overwhelmed by the information you're given and seeing other people be overwhelmed by the information you're given and having to um, absorb it in some way and like understand it. Um, I think that's one of the ways they do it. I think that another thing, if we're going to talk about like systemic issues on the whole, I think a lot of the frustration that I feel in this movie, and I think a lot of people feel while watching this movie, is like, watching, um, and I was thinking about this in terms of the importance of interviews, is like watching people who are part of the system, like the Cardinal, like the represent- representatives of the church or the schools or whoever else, like very clearly lying. Like you're watching them and you know they're lying. Like on some level, you know they're lying. You know that they're not telling the truth or that they're bending the truth or that they're trying to get rid of you or that they're trying to bribe you. Um, You know that or that they're condescending to you. Um, Um, you know that and you have no proof so you're just standing there and you're like I know this is happening like I know this is happening because I can see it in these other people's faces but how do I show other people who have no contact with them who have no nothing that it is happening and I think like because like Vicar mentioned, for example, like in the police and stuff with the effects of systemic racism, I think that's a lot of the frustration people feel these days, even just the average person having a conversation with it, uh, with someone else about it, is just like, where do I get the information to show people what I know, because I know this is happening, and I know that it's awful, but you need to prove it, and that is something everyone can relate to. Like knowing deep down in your bones, even having the information that you need to prove it, but then having to put together those pieces and to figure it out, I think that's a feeling everyone knows um, because everyone's been in that situation before.
0: Mm -hmm. And sort of on that point, one of the most visceral scenes of the film for me was when Sasha actually encountered... Uh, one of these priests uh, and attempted to interview him, although it didn't last long. And it was a pretty brief exchange. But through that, we also glean the information that he himself was the victim of such abuse that he uh, was guilty of. So we can sort of see that systemic corruption uh, and injustice uh, in an interesting way, uh, given the, the limited uh, scope of the film. And I think it also speaks to another aspect that Colin brought up, Uh, which is that we don't get to see many of the the priests themselves and what the effect of that may be in our understanding of the film.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think the analogy that, uh, that I use, and I don't know if it's a, it's a good one, because it's a really heavy topic, but I think I've said it before is like, to me, it's like the, it's like the shark in Jaws. Like, I think, uh, you know, it's like when you don't see it, it makes it scarier. I think, like, um, you know, as Marta was saying, it's sort of incomprehensible to imagine ninety priests, but I think it makes it scarier when you don't even see them, right? They're sort of they're sort of lurking in the background. And I think that all that, that highlights too, I mean it makes them scary because you don't see them. You don't know what you're you know what they're doing, you can only imagine. And also I think it it uh, it's sort of it it's sort of a a metaphor for how they're being protected and it heightens the scene when we do get to meet the actual priest because it just makes what he's saying all the more horrific.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think the Jaws comparison is pretty apt because uh, they are sort of monsters in a way, so there is something sort of obviously horrific about the action, so I, I think that that's pretty on the mark. That's, that's not as out there as, as you may think.
1: I've actually never seen Jaws, so I can't really speak to that. I think that what I would say, though, um, is that not having the priests there makes it even clearer that like yeah obviously they're predators but also in a broader way they're not really the problem like they are the problem but they're also not really the problem because someone is letting this happen like that's kind of the big point of the movie is that like yeah these individual priests are obviously like awful people even if they don't think they are but arguably the people who are allowing them do it and who are allowing it to happen over and over and over again are even worse. And I think that that kind of, it's kind of interesting because you you miss, the, you miss the jaws, you miss the shark, but it's almost like you get whatever is controlling the shark. Like, I don't know how to say it better than that. I'm trying to think of like a metaphor, whatever like eats the shark. I, I don't know. There's, you, there's
0: always a bigger fish as one movie reminds us.
1: Yeah, you're, you're getting the mega predator, you're getting the real predator, which is the Catholic Church, which is the institution that pretends to care, but clearly does not actually care, or at least doesn't care in a practical way about the people they're hurting. And in, yeah, just like the, the priests really don't matter, man. Like, it's the victims that matter, the victims matter. And it's the system that matters, because the system is like the, the, the people who are allowing this to happen. And I think that's like made even clearer in the movie by the fact that we only do get to meet the one priest. And even when we meet the one priest, it's it's their family covering up for them. I feel like that's almost a microcosm of the church. It's like the church is like this big happy family, right? But what happens when you're so committed to that family that you're willing to get rid of anyone or any kind of thing just to, protect them um, or to protect yourself more likely
0: an interesting point you brought up in the meeting related to that murder was the the genre implications of showing the priests too much uh, for fear that that may sort of uh, give the implication of it being more of a, a true crime style uh, you know, documentary as opposed to putting the emphasis squarely on the journalists and the victims and uncovering the stories. So I'm curious to hear you explain that a little bit more.
1: So um, my favorite true crime documentary ever is this one called Great Crimes and Trials. And it's a series and it essentially focus on it focuses on true crime. And it has all the kind of like hallmarks of true crime, you know, like it shows you the crime, it shows you what happened, it does the reenactments, it talks about it. But then it does something I think that's a little bit different for true crime, which it focuses on the broader implications on the legal system. It talks about how the trial affected law and how it affected how people look at law. And I really liked that because even though it's like the obvious kind of like, true crime fodder that is really popular because it's kind of like for shock value, um, it still puts in the effort to kind of like, to show you why these things matter beyond just being like, you know, shock stories or like things that happened. And I think that's like, Spotlight does that to an even greater degree because um, again, it's it's not true crime. It's not about these priests who prey on these children. In fact, Like, true crime very rarely, I think, encompasses, like, pedophilia specifically. It does sometimes, but it's because to some extent, even true crime fanatics don't want to think about that. And so I think in a way, like, what Spotlight really does by not, like, showing you the priests is obviously it, like, walks that ethical line of, like, not really engaging these people who did these crimes, which is, like, yeah, you probably shouldn't engage them and, like, arguably make the suffering of the victim's worse, but moreover, it shows you where the focus is, which again is on the victims. And more importantly, it's on it, how it changes the system. It's telling you these stories matter and this matters, not because it's some like thing you talk about with your friends, like true crime, you know, some crazy thing that happened in your hometown or some crazy thing that happened, like, um, like that happens... True crime happens a lot. Um, I guess like that's its point. Um, Crime happens, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, crime does happen, I guess. It's not like this crazy thing that happened in one place. It has meaning and purpose and it did something and it has implications for things. And I think that's, um, that's why they don't focus on the priests in like an ethical capacity. Also just like from a journalist's point of view, I doubt a lot of the priests would want to talk to them. And also moreover, I doubt that the Catholic church would let them talk to them. Um, that seems very unlikely.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Colin, you also brought up a Netflix docu-series that sort of related to the topic of church corruption and, you know, the themes of this film.
2: Yeah. So the, the one that I recommend everyone watches, cause I think it's, it's, uh, it probably, you know, at first you're watching it, you might think that it sort of falls into the genre that, uh, Marta's not so not so fond of Uh, just but I think because at first it's about uh, the murder of a nun but then it actually sort of goes into how this was a a cover-up for an abuse scandal much like the one in Spotlight that was happening in the 1960s in Baltimore which is also obviously on the east coast of the United States so it has uh, similarities but it's called The Keepers and it's certainly a heavy watch but I certainly recommend it as a companion piece uh, to Spotlight because it really goes over sort of the depths of this in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a documentary-like fashion, obviously, because it's a documentary, uh, not a movie, but they, they're really good companion pieces. And it just speaks
0: to the strengths of different mediums, whether it be documentary or feature film, but uh, the shared ability to comment on the same theme in a compelling and poignant and informative manner.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think that in a way, Spotlight is almost like meta discussion. It's not even like discussion because, again, I do think that in a lot of ways, the point of this is to um, show the stories of the victims, which I believe is incredibly important. But on an entirely de- different level, it's um, to show how these stories get out in the first place and the process by which that happens and how it needs to be handled. And so I think that, like, kind of what you said about mediums, Vikram, the point of something like The Keepers, which, again, I haven't watched but let's say like great crimes and trials is more journalistic actually at that point you're seeing the finished product of the process that is portrayed in spotlight but i think that like i i hope that if people like truly watch spotlight to like a degree that is very analytical um they'll start thinking more about what it takes to get those kinds of news stories out um and the kind of research that's the other thing that i think is really smart of them to do is that they almost like overwhelm you with paperwork like they show you somehow they manage to make paperwork interesting like they just show you these massive amounts of paperwork that they have to go through this massive amount of research they have to do um because that's really what it is it's like literally i think there's a line where they're like the catholic church thinks in centuries can you do that and that's like that's a crazy line that's a great line because the truth is when you're a journalist you got to be contending against these institutions that are thinking centuries like when i'm Like, this is an awful example, but again, like, at the varsity, like, if I'm going up against U of T, U of T isn't thinking about my one article this week. U of T is thinking about the long game. U of T is thinking about how they're going to be looked at 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And that's what they're constantly thinking about. And so just that kind of, like, I, I don't even know where this point was going, really, but just that kind of, like, scope and just that kind of understanding and just that kind of, like, it's cool to see I think what Spotlight is really, what's really cool about Spotlight, ultimately, is that its fictional capacities allow them to show the process behind these things, and um, it's really fantastic that it was done so well because it's not often like it's hard to dramatize massive amounts of paperwork, Um, and and they do good a they do a good job of it for sure.
0: I mean, if there's a way to make paperwork interesting, I've yet to learn it. So. That's definitely something I appreciated from the procedures as well, uh, and we've discussed the complicity of the church and that institution. Uh, but Colin, what do you think are some of the other ways complicity is represented in the film?
2: Yeah, I think Marta touched on it earlier, but for me, the the main like way that we see complicity is through the character of Robbie, because you know he's the leader of the Spotlight team. And, you know, as we watch the movie, he sort of slowly starts to go come on the side of Marty, and he sort of he butts heads a little bit with some of his friends at the Boston Globe or people that he knows and lawyers also who don't understand why he's uh, taking on the story or why, you know, or they're trying to bury it. And then, you know, I think he's sort of almost like our hero and the main hero of the journalists because he's sort of the lead journalist. And then at the end we, you know, have this realization that, uh, he received a very similar story maybe 10 years before and he didn't do anything about it. And like Marta was saying, it wasn't necessarily because he buried the story and he said, I don't want this coming out because I want to defend the church. It was more that you know he didn't even really think about it because it wasn't on his radar and he was just sort of going through the motions and it didn't raise a red flag the way it should have. And I think in that sense, he sort of represents probably what a lot of us do in our own communities, in our own lives, you know, we see things that we know sort of deep down are wrong, but for some reason we just sort of let them pass. And I think, you know, another example of that is uh, abuse in general, but, you know, we think about things like Me Too or or harassment of minorities and women, you know, like we, you know, maybe like 20 years ago, if someone saw someone being harassed in a way that that we look down on now, they might say, well, that's so-and-so being so-and-so, you know, to quote the whole, like the locker room talk thing that was so big, you know, years ago. And I think that's what this movie is showing, right? Is that, in a different way, because it's not just, it's not about necessarily man-woman relations. It's just about the relations of the powerful to those who they have influence over. And I think it's sort of showing how we give powerful institutions a pass without really even thinking about it at certain points.
1: And I mean, if I can... Because I always love Marxist analysis or anti-capitalist analysis, I should call it. Um, I feel like I'm just going to return to the concept of, like, it's not just a job. Is because, like, here's the thing. I think there's this constant tension in the movie, especially in the character of Robbie, because I... I don't want to like be super mad at Robbie for this mistake you know like people are human you're not always going to pick up on this stuff you know you're you're having a bad day or like literally you're like I don't know you're suffering from like possibly burnout or something else and you're just doing story after story after story like that's a lot of work that's a lot of actually like to some degree being a writer can be traumatic like being a writer for a journal uh, like for a newspaper can be traumatic because you're intaking such massive amounts of information often negative. Um, And you're just you're just trying to like, remain passionate while doing that and remain ambitious and want to keep like writing. And you don't want to get mad at Robbie for that. But like, it's that tension of like, he was editor, right? it's not just a promotion like this is and this is where my anti-capitalist analysis is going to come in like the the concept of like getting a promotion of just doing something because it's going to make you more money or just doing something because you get a higher rank you know like that really can't apply anymore to certain positions. in fact it can not apply I think there's like there's like there's this one tweet that I saw one time that was like white people be like my dad's a racist but it doesn't matter and their dad's like a circuit court judge and like that's kind of what it feels like it feels like people who are constantly excusing people because it's like it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter but then it's like no these jobs actually really do matter and no it's actually more than a title and no in some ways you need to almost be beyond human in these positions because it's like a lot is depending on you um doing your job and I I do think there's like that constant push and pull um but then again it's not just on him You know, there's a newsroom full of people and it only took a few of them. It only took one editor and like four spotlight people to be like, no, we're actually gonna pursue this. So maybe it doesn't take a village to uncover a story like this. And we need to be, it's ambiguous. I I think even I'm confused on this topic because you wanna allow people the space to be human but also sometimes just too much depends on us not being human. (laughs)
0: I mean, I think overall, this film provides a pretty positive portrayal of the onus of journalists for uncovering corruption and promoting some sort of morality in this new modern world of ours. Uh, But I'm slightly concerned that perhaps in this day and age, when we've seen media take a turn for the worse, arguably in some ways, that it's a bit of a romantic portrayal of the plight and burden of the journalists. So Marta, you've already intimated that your experiences in student journalism. So I'm curious to hear your take on that whole portrayal.
1: It can be complicated is what I'm going to say about this, because I think a every journalist has made mistakes. I have made more s- mistakes in how I've represented people. And that tends to it's good that I've started on such a low level because it just it just reminds me constantly that when I'm representing people, um, I need to be careful of what I say. So I do think journalists get better as they gain more experience, obviously. I think that the main tension and how we look at journalism now um, happens to just be about context. Like, for example, when Donald Trump calls all news fake news, we tend to generally be like, well, no, we need news, actually, because um, we need freedom of the press and we need it to like get information. But with stuff like BLM, for example, p- press has made very clear mistakes and it's like. It's mistakes that are honestly like institutional and traditional, like, for example, the use of passive language and headlines that obscures the actor of an action like black man shot uh, shot in the middle of the night that totally obscures the person who does that that kind of stuff matters right and in a lot of ways it's just like journalistic custom to do that kind of stuff but it sometimes just it doesn't cut it um and so I think that um it would have been hard to represent those kinds of nuances in the movie in some ways like those really really kind of nitpicky things but I do think that it um it has the tendency to portray journalists as, uh, it it comes out ultimately in how the story is revealed. Like the fact that um, the implication is that everything was fine when the story was revealed or not fine. I think in some ways they just don't show us the fallout as much as I would have liked them to because um, I mean, I would have frankly been pretty surprised if like none of the victims had felt misrepresented or none of the victims had felt uncomfortable by the portrayal. Because it's really hard to do that kind of stuff. And so from my perspective, I think I would have appreciated more nuance on the difficulty of representation, and how people mess it up, because that is something that journalists should be held accountable for. Um, And we don't get a lot of examples of journalists in in like movies and stuff or in like, uh, like in popular media, just because, again, it's not a super interesting job, at least not like the nitty gritty details of it um so it's hard to even find a counterpoint for it, really, where you can find something that shows the corruption of media. I can't think of one off the top of my head it, well, I can um the last season of the wire, but that's the only one really
0: How about you, Colin? What do you make of the implications in the film of real world journalism?
2: uh yeah, I mean, I agree with Marta. like I think you said it so well. I'm trying to think of something else to say, but uh yeah, to me, I don't know, it comes up with like things like maybe like just bias in general. I think, you know, I think right now I was looking at, I was watching something today where they were talking about, not to make this political, but I would, uh, but I was watching something where like CNN was like criticizing left-wing media for being soft on President Joe Biden, you know, like, and I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, they, they themselves have been accused of that. So I think to me, it just speaks of like this idea of, of, of bias and also perhaps it, it might make it seem exactly like what Marta was saying that, you know, uh, um, uh, journalism, it, it might make journalists look a little, it might, it might make them look a little too good. You know, it might make, it might give you a little bit too much trust in them. You know, it's kind of sugarcoating it. And I agree. I, I didn't think about that, that it would it would be kind of shocking if no one had any problem with the story and it was just sort of kind of like cleaned up, done, ta-da, more people came forward. So yeah, I was a little rambly, but I I don't think I can say anything else. I think Marta really uh, encapsulated it.
0: And thanks for giving me license Marta. I'm totally gonna hold your old articles against you in the future. Should I find them improper in some way?
1: I mean, in terms of accountability, that's probably for the best. Not to take the joke <laughs> comment too seriously, but it's probably for the best if people call me out on journalistic mistakes I've made. There's always, like, this This is what I mean by saying, like, even you're, when you're at these low levels, like, when you talk to people directly and when they're telling you their stories, it, it's, like, ultimately not just a job. Like, even if I, I do this on a volunteer basis, like, people still hold me to a certain <laughs> standard. And it's, like, can you imagine actually getting paid and dealing with like literal survivors of assault like that's yeah like you you have to hold people accountable I guess is kind of like my final thing and like even if I I technically represent institutional media my newspaper has existed for like I think over a century now um and I can say that openly you have to hold media accountable um even if I don't think there's a situation in which one side is entirely wrong and one side is entirely right. Um, But that doesn't mean that there can't be conversations and that doesn't mean there shouldn't be conversations about this kind of stuff. I think they're necessary.
0: What an excellent sentiment to end on, uh, especially to keep in mind in our current day and age. Uh, Thank you so much, Colin and Marta for a fascinating conversation. Thanks. Thanks Vikram. Thanks for listening to our conversation. For more information on Spotlight, including some of the analyses we referenced in the episode, check out the links in the description. You can also keep up with all of SVC's activities, including our past journal publications and upcoming club meeting information, on our website, also linked in the episode description. I'd like to take the moment to thank the Victoria University Student Administrative Council VUSAC, and the University of Toronto Students Union UTSU, for their continued support of our club, Screenwriting at Victoria College. Finally, I want to give a big shout-out to our entire podcast team. Our audio editor, Karin Langmior. Our writing and research team, Nujat Tabasam and Kaelin Ball. Our content coordinator, Connie Zen. And finally, our content head and co-host, Marta Anjalska. This has been Vikram Nujawan,
1: Fade to Black.